welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. A bit of personal news before we start this episode today. Uh, This is my second to last Free Thoughts. I'm leaving the show after next week's one, which will be a conversation just between Trevor and me. I'm off to other things after nearly 13 years at Cato, and it's been a tremendous privilege and honor to get to do this show for nearly 450 episodes, I believe. Um, but for this this last episode with me on it of Free Thoughts, we have brought back our greatest guest, Trevor. Joining us today is Peter Van Doren, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute and editor of Regulation Magazine. Welcome back to the show for, I don't even know how many times, it's in the 20s at least. It's a lot. Welcome, Peter. Well, thanks for having me. I'm not sure I'm worthy of that uh, introduction, but I like the conversations we have, and uh, I think it's it's uh, well, it's I I like free thoughts. I, I mean, I'm an educator at heart, and I've got some notions, but I don't know the answers, and uh, that um, that and, and, and some of the topics we'll talk about today, I'll ask you questions because. I want to know if you know the answers. <laughs> well, this is the, the this these episodes have always been the answer to the question of what happens when two philosophers and pseudo lawyers meet up with an economist slash political political scientist to talk about things that they're not quite sure about. As you said, it's one of your biggest, most valuable traits is uh, you're anything if not dogmatic. If you're you're, you're anything but dogmatic, uh, to say the least, which is why everyone comes to you at Cato, no matter even what department they are in, to try and get a reality check on uh, whether we're being overly dogmatic. Well, also just that Peter, it's remarkable. You can wander into Peter's office and say, what do you know about this? And he'll say, oh, I don't, I don't think I know a lot, but hold on. And then he'll just sort through a handful of three by five cards and then launch into a 45 minute lecture of like jaw-dropping expertise on whatever topic. I don't know that I've stumped him yet, except for Kant. You didn't know about Immanuel Kant. Listeners who are fans of Peter Van Doren should know about the note cards. I'm not leaving free thoughts. I'm going to continue it as a solo endeavor. So there'll be more conversations with Peter. And Aaron has maybe some plans in the future to do his own podcast. So, so, you know, it's not the end of, of everything by any means. Um, yeah. So, Peter, I just want to say, what what have you been thinking about recently? But I know one thing you've been thinking about it because we talked about it in my office: nuclear power. Which, as everyone says, you know, there, I think there's coming around. There's a. I see more of the environmentalist side arguing than they did say five years ago that if you're anti greenhouse gas emissions and not pro nuclear, then they can't really take you seriously. But you seem to think it's not that simple in the in the cost benefit analysis well i used to think so and now i'm maybe cha- well it, nuclear power um go way back when in the in the 50s when it started in early 60s being pro nuclear was to be progressive okay coal was well the, the famous line about nuclear which is why progressives were for it at the time was that it would be too cheap to meter Okay, it was thought that it was just a hunk of capital. The marginal costs were so close to zero that once we paid for the capital, that nuclear power would be, quote, too cheap to meter, unquote. 
So unions were for it because of construction jobs, which is also why they're still for it. Uh, and coal was um, sort of Republican, believe it or not. And, and I guess it's, it's come back to that, except for the United Mine Workers, right? The United Mine. So you had a, a left-right coalition that was pro coal but the business side of coal was Republican and, and still is. So anyway, nuclear started out as um, progressive. Well, then we get the cost increases during the 70s, and that island happens. So then the environmental left and the business side see nukes as just too expensive. And you end up with long times, right? The, 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 the time to build a plant takes 15 years, something like that. You end up with a plant on Long Island named Shoreham that uh, doesn't open at all. They build it and then don't open it because of uh, people don't think the nuclear evacuation plans are uh, possible, right? Think of the density of the Long Island Expressway, which in, even on good days doesn't work. And so imagine blah million people trying to escape Long Island because of something. So Shoreham was built and never opened. Then Seabrook in New Hampshire ends up being the albatross cost-wise over all the New England utilities that were co-investors in it. One reason utility rates in New England are so high is they're still paying off Seabrook, which at the time, my memory is that it was some on, something on the order of 23 cents a kilowatt hour was the sort of levelized cost estimate, the sort of amortized cost of the nuclear plant divided by its output over 40 years worked as like 23 cents a kilowatt hour. And that was in the early 90s. Do you, so anyway, nukes expensive. So along comes global warming. And then, oh, you get, you get environmentalists, some environmentalists say nukes are the answer. And then you get business interests that are thinking in nukes, et cetera, et cetera. So what should, what should libertarians think about nuclear power? Well, the short answer is, and I guess it, well, you can tell me whether you think it was a lazy answer or not, but my answer, along with our old colleague Jerry Taylor, was we didn't give it much thought for, from a libertarian point of view because we said everywhere in the world, nuclear power seems to need state power. In, everywhere in the world except the United States, the nuclear plants are owned and operated by the state or, or instruments of the state. And then there's the 10,000-year nuclear waste problem, right? There's no private contract in the world that's lasted 10,000 years. So you have your Yucca Mountain waste disposal era, right? And then um, the, the senator from Nevada made sure that Yucca Mountain never opened. Now there's no senator from Nevada that's majority leader. So anyway, the easy... We thought the easy answer was nuclear power seemed to be everywhere a creature of the state. There was no merchant interest in building nukes. Therefore, libertarians should just stop at that. We don't need to do cost-benefit analysis because it just doesn't seem like there's any entrepreneurial possibility given the legal liability issues and the 10,000-year radioactive waste disposal problem. So put that aside. What my Jeff Myron and I are doing now is, is trying to think through a, a narrow question, which is that we don't see any carbon tax level 
would be sufficient just from an economic point of view to make the 40-year cost estimate of a nuclear plant equal to or less than natural gas, right? It's sort of ignore the waste problem, ignore the liability, right? It just, you can pile all that on at the end, but is nuclear power viable from a econo- strictly economic point of view if the carbon tax were high enough? And the answer is yes. So the question is, does the cost, you know, does the break-even world look like a $40 a ton carbon tax or a 400 If it's 400 and no country is thinking about that as anywhere near politically possible, then once you add in the liability and the long-term waste problem, then you could say libertarians, yeah, the state could do it. But notice it still doesn't make sense because no one's thinking that the carbon tax ought to be $400. So we're just trying to do an order of magnitude. Is it 40 or 400 or somewhere in between? That's sort of what we're up to. So I'll let you ask some questions or your thoughts on how you guys have thought about nuclear. On the liability question, um, is this an issue where, you know, so if if the liability is basically like this power generation mechanism can harm people, you know, like meltdowns and whatnot are dangerous and can kill people, and there's a long-term environmental cost or both in terms of like environmental damage and or storage costs in the long term, um, it seems like like coal has that stuff too, right? Like coal is putting particulates into the air, polluting, causing problems, um, and it does long-term environmental damage. Um, it clearly can, you know, harm people's health in in the form of air pollutants and so on, or even the people in the mines inhaling like the direct particulates. But the issue is it's less, I guess, spectacular. Like when a, when a nuclear power plant melts down, you like you see it happen right then and there, and you see the people who are harmed. You can like you can know it, um, and and the the environmental and the storage costs are we've got this stuff and it's these in these small amounts, but it's dangerous. We've got to put it somewhere. Whereas the the cost of coal and the environmental harms are much more dispersed, much harder to measure. They're they're kind of everywhere affecting an extremely large number of people. It's hard to know which people were actually hurt and how much. And so is this an issue where there are higher liability issues with nuclear simply because it's really hard to measure the liability and costs of coal? Well, one good, very good question. One is what's the true sort of scientific estimate of this stuff versus the political economy seen and unseen kind of thing, which I think you're hinting at. The seen and unseen on the political side is is real, right? That people are scared of nukes. There's a certain uh, kind of nerdy analysis which says that that fear is overwrought, et cetera, et cetera. But then Fukushima happened. But even there, right, I've run an article or I've described an article in one of my columns in regulation where some very good risk analysts estimated how to think about Fukushima and the Japanese decision to not only deal with it, but to shut down all nukes in Japan still. Well, then, because Japan doesn't have coal, right? Japan has to import oil. And so the cost of electricity rose quite a bit because of the shutdown. And 
these analysts calculated that there were lots of elderly and not so elderly deaths in Japan because people couldn't afford the electricity and therefore didn't heat their homes and therefore got cold and froze to death. And the death toll of that seems to in all, given their estimate of radiation exposure and radiation death likelihood and things like that, the long-term Fukushima death toll was actually much greater because of the shutdown of the nukes than any kind of rational risk analysis about radiation exposure, et cetera, et cetera. So there is, there are those kinds of, of, of articles in the literature and the, um, so, oh, yes. So both on a rational nerdy side, the costs of coal are dispersed and not that seen. And as we've talked, I don't know if we've talked about it, but the, there's, the literature is very conflicted about the effects of PM 2.5, the, the so-called very small particles that come from fossil fuel combustion, uh, and including coal, and the effect of all that soot that we actually can't see on morbidity and mortality is contentious. Everyone agrees, though, that depending on your views on that, that makes coal deadly or not deadly, depending on your conclusions about that. Um, but yes, but from the public's point of view, the nuke stuff shows up on uh, TV when it happens, whereas the coal stuff is just sort of ongoing, with the exception of, uh, you earlier talked about those waste ponds the, where, where they store the coal ash. Oh my God. Those things aren't, I mean, have to be, uh, well, they're unregulated, and not sure in a Cato world they ought to be unregulated. I mean, they they are long-term water supply issues, and every now and then they're near rivers, and then the river overflows, and then the ash dump goes crazy, and then you got lots of stuff in the water. So the fact that those aspects of coal production are <clears throat> not probably regulated enough, um, yes, I agree with you. But again, we're not actually doing our analysis vis-a-vis -vis coal. We're, we're, we're saying coal is basically dying, and so it's, it's natural gas that's the issue. When, when, what, what carbon tax, what level would make baseload nuclear, or a baseload nuclear plant competitive with something called a baseload natural gas plant, uh, so-called combined cycle plant? Let's talk about liability caps for a second, because I think these are something that are often missed by libertarians as a significant subsidy. One, I guess we could talk about, do we agree with them at all? Because uh, there's one vein of libertarianism that would say liability caps are you know, contrary to a well-functioning tort system. And it's interesting because if you were – the question here, one of the questions that I see it is in a totally free market with good tort system and uh, good controlling of externalities, would anyone ever build a nuclear plant uh, because of the, the risk of a tail event that would create, you know, it would really be, it'd be an interesting. Or put it, to put it differently, let's say for weird possible stuff. In the future, the libertarian position was, oh, well, you could go bankrupt and you don't have enough net worth. to." So therefore, we're 
libertarian approved, we're going to require a bond. You have to put blah amount of money. And there, see, we need to talk about how much blah is. You need to put blah amount of money in a Federal Reserve Bank of New York account, right? And hope you're not the government of, of Afghanistan that, that, that had their money blocked or something. And so <laughs> you got to put a pile of money somewhere. And then if you know what hit the fan, then the monies are released under contractual agreements for the damages. So it seems to me to be a reasonable libertarian uh, position. Maybe this throws a silly question. It is, but the blah, the blah, blah question is important. How, how much? Uh, yeah. Well, but this, this seems like, I mean, maybe I'm asking a silly question here, but isn't that what insurance is for? Like there are tail events that we, you know, we all have, like we have auto insurance because we might end up needing to pay a bundle of money or homeowner's insurance because our house might burn down and we don't expect it to happen. And so we contract with an insurance company to pay premiums. Like why wouldn't that same apply here? Good. So then the question is, is a Lloyd's of London contract credible? And again, it then depends on what's the biggest Lloyd's payout ever, right? And then would a nuke contract, liability contract, what order of magnitude would it be relative to any previous private Lloyd's payout? And again, we then would ask, is it same order of magnitude or many, many zeros above that? In which case, you then get into the issue of, well, if this is a lot bigger than any other Lloyd's contract ever, is that a credible commitment? And I feel like the best analogy would be the kind of hurricane payouts, which I know are can be, you know, the big hurricanes like Katrina, but those also deal with certain some certain subsidies. I mean, you've written about, you know, flood plains, building houses on flood plains and things like that. I mean, like the this, good but, news is I mean that I mean Hurricane Hugo, Andrew, Katrina, those are those have got to be, you know, about as big as there Chernobyl. is private hurricane reinsurance, believe it or not. And guess FEMA actually writes contracts with Lloyd's type entities for and Swiss Ray for these kinds of reinsurance contracts. But those contracts have limits. So again, we're back to how how big a deal is. Uh, so that may be our next paper or what Jeff and I try to do is try to work through uh, again, because uh, Lloyd's is private, it, I don't know, I, I literally don't know wh whether the data on their payouts are publicly available or not, but we'd need to know that. And again, just do an order of magnitude analysis, which is the private market where equity is totally at risk, which is what the Lloyd's, right? the owners of Lloyd's put their personal wealth at stake in an unlimited sense towards these kinds of contracts. It's a big deal. So, all right, that's worked out for 400 years. And, 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 but I don't know whether nuke is falls into the possible range of things that, that, that would, uh, that they could deal with or not. And, and I haven't seen any papers on, that doesn't mean they don't exist, but I've read a lot and I haven't seen anyone ask that question, which is what I think we agree the question that should be mm. asked. Well, how do we take the swirling mass of costs? I mean, I know this is you know half of more than half of writing one of these papers, but Aaron, you know, alluded to various things that could be seen as subsidies to 
alternatives to nuclear, either coal, natural gas, or, or I guess not so much oil, but there's a lot of subsidies there. Uh, there are subsidies for offshore drilling of oil oil wells because there's a liability cap. Um, so people probably don't want to drill offshore. I think are there are there liability caps for various harms that could environmentally happen to that comes from a coal plant, like you mentioned, the coal pollutant runoff. Um, Not that I know of. See, the nukes are covered by the Price-Anderson Act, which caps. The private owners, right, most, except for TVA and some others, most nuclear plants in the United States are owned by utilities. Not merchants, but by vertically integrated utilities that are in rate-regulated states, okay? And the Price-Anderson Act limits the liability of those owners to, I'd have to check, it's, I should have, uh, I think, I won't, anyway, $100 million, I forget. It caps it. And then above that, the feds are totally uh, liable for everything above that above that lim- uh, that level. Then there's a tiny literature on trying to estimate how big a subsidy that is or isn't. And we've had an article in regulation that talks about that. And the author says, basically, hell if I know, but it might be anywhere from two cents a kilowatt hour to 20, which, which isn't that helpful because that's pretty much the range of all possible sources of power. So um, anyway. So what would you, I mean, that's, you would want to know, there's a lot of unknowables here. Um, the <laughs> We have your known unknowns yeah, and your unknowns. Exactly. Unknowns. But uh, I mean, even trying to estimate, what is the range that tends to be given? I imagine it's huge because the literature is big, but on a carbon tax, if like, what level a carbon tax should be put at. I mean, you said that there's a lot of contention about particulate matter, but then... Well, the the so-called social cost of carbon coming out of Brookings, RFF, kind of mainstream, you know, think tanks is in the 120-ish range. Um, whereas um, the, the, you know, politically, no one's thought of anything kind of other than in the 20 to 40 range. Uh, and um, so if if our if the results of our work come up with something in the 40 range, then nukes, quote, make sense, right? That the, that the smallest carbon tax anyone considers would be sufficient to make nukes viable. If it's in the 120, then we'll sort of not know. And then if it's in the 400, it leaves open the question, at least in my mind, of whether libertarians slash rational cost-benefit folks ought to be as pro-nuke as they are now. Um, well, one thing we, we haven't talked about is the capital cost overrun problem. If you read, I mean, I've been reading Scientific American forever and ever and since the 70s, they've said cheap nukes were around the corner. Well, the, the corner seems to be, you know, it's like the light in the t- just yeah it's just further and further away. So there's now a new what I call a new nuclear boosterism which says so-called modular nukes and other innovations are there and I don't know what to make of that. We have to figure out uh, most of me is suspicious. It seems like boosterism to me and whereas the evidence of the plants in Georgia, right? That we're building 
under government subsidy, we're completing the, uh, we're adding some plants in Georgia. There's also a plant in Finland being built by EDF, the French company. And France actually just this week announced they're going more nuke, right? Well, if you, the numbers are kind of eight to $10,000 a kilowatt of capacity. Um, those are extraordinary numbers. How does that compare to other, like, how does that compare to natural oh, gas? Natural gas is stunningly or... below that by order of magnitude, you know, it just, and so again, the only thing that makes natural gas dicey is um, the cost of natural gas, right? Nat natural gas is a low capital cost, high marginal cost fuel source. Nuke is the opposite. So everything on nukes hinges on cost of capital, a realistic estimate, and then the discount rate. What, what, what real interest rate do you use in a fair cost-benefit comparison? Is the right of real interest rates have gone down over the last 40 years. Do we think that's real? Do we is it going to keep that way? Is the cost of capital going to explode? And do you understand all those assumptions because nuke is so capital intensive drive your answer? So we won't come up with an answer. We'll just say if you use a 7% real rate of return on capital, then wow, nukes, they got to really perform well and the carbon tax can't be too high because they'll be priced out of business. If cost of capital is low enough for long enough period of time, then you get a different answer. And, and so, uh, again, I think a fair analysis just presents all this to the reader and then say you choose or we don't know, some combination of, of the two, because 40 years ago, if you told me real interest, that we would borrow as much as we are now and real interest rates are, are, are 2%, for 30-year bonds, that's like, what? That's not possible. Well, it is. It's happening. I mean, so again, will it be true over the 40-year lifetime of this plant? And the answer is probably not. But is it going to go hot? You know. Well, that, I, I one more on, on the nuclear thing. It, it, I keep hearing that um, there's been sort of stunning, there's been a lot of discussion of new ideas, new technological advancements in nuclear power, but a lot of them haven't come to fruition or they haven't been as promising as people thought. Uh, but then also the, there's a lot of arguments that having not built nuclear power plants in a while, at least in America, one, we've, we've not innovated. And two, some things have even been forgotten uh, about how to build some of these things. Uh, but like, so if we need innovation generally to keep capital costs down. I mean, that's one thing, you know, where people keep innovating to keep the capital costs down. But if like, if we're not, if there's no competition and the entry costs are super high and they're all sort of state-based, it seems that we shouldn't expect a huge amount of innovation in terms of lowering the capital costs of nuclear plants. Agreed. The one exception that we've found so far in our research is we need to take Korea seriously. They seem to have low cost, well, relatively low cost plants. Then the discussion mostly on the right is, it, it, are American safety standards too much, right? The usual sort of is regulation, is the NRC run amok? And I'll, I'll give you some insight. There was a paper uh, that I've written about in regulation that was published last year. And it said the following, 
They, tr they looked at all the nuclear plant construction cost histories in the United States, right? The first compilation of everything. And they noted the cost increase. And they then said, well, why? Well, it appears that there, there's the following safety standard, and you have to tell me whether you think it's nutty or not. That nuclear containment vessels, right, the concrete that surrounds the nuclear plant, uh, not the heat exchangers, but the actual reactor, that concrete vessel has to be strong enough to withstand the direct hit from an airplane. Yeah, that's crazy. Okay, that's that's in the regs. That is, you mean like like a see like a bombing attack from Russia? I mean, not a nuclear weapon, but like a a, a traditional bombing attack from the Russians or something? No, an airplane flying into it, it has to withstand that. And this paper said about a third of the capital costs of, or the sorry, a third of the increase since the low cost seventies. Uh, the third of the increase may be the result of that particular of, of safety standards. And then again, you have to have a discussion of, well, is that, so when I read it, I said, no, that's not nutty. I mean, to be able to withstand an airplane crash into your nuclear containment vessel, that's, I mean, it's rare, but uh, the World Trade Towers, I mean, it's, we. so do you want, the World Trade Towers are bad, but do you ever, ever want that to happen to a nuclear plant? And the answer is probably, well, if you do, do you want the plant to survive? Do you want the containment vessel to survive? And I said, as a reasonable person, I said, that doesn't strike me as outlandish, but I'm quite willing to have a conversation about how nutty it is and then et cetera, et cetera. But do you see, I mean, again, it's, for, again, we're, we're trying to talk about what should libertarians think about this. And so from a principled position, we're back to what's the right way to talk about risk analysis. And there's normal economics and risk analysis. But the, what we're discussing today is, does libertarianism per se have anything to add to that? You know, something that Trevor and Aaron have thought of that the nerds at the Journal of Risk Analysis have not. Well, it seems like there's also a there's an economics economic growth angle to this and to risks because what we're saying is these things have unlikely but potentially very high costs. But at the same time, we know that economic growth unleashes innovation, which tends to make products better and safer. Um, and having greater wealth allows you to weather disasters and bad things better or come up with ways to they they still happen but they don't do as much damage and so on and you know one way to get a fair amount of economic growth would be to have radically more available energy and cheaper energy um, and longer term if it's cleaner energy that's that's good as well and so if our right if all of our risk analysis is assuming like a static world, then we we're not we're not really taking into account you know what abundance does, and it would seem like we're therefore somewhat overestimating the the actual long term risks or at least damage from those risks and underestimating 
the benefits we would get from these these technologies are the ones that might emerge 10, 15, 20, 50 years down the road of, you know, growth unleashing innovation. Fair enough. I mean, that's the Cato, that's the, you know, the human progress Cato argument. And I get it in general. I just push back slightly in that nuclear power cost over, I mean, why have so many smart people had so little success in controlling nuclear plant construction costs across trees, across time? It's not just us, right? It's the French... The, art, the, the article in the Times this week where Macron announced we're going to build nukes, the number is just stunning. Again, EDF is building the plan in Finland. EDF has built the most nukes of anybody in the world, right? A single entity, right? The nukes in the U.S. are built by different companies. ED, there are 85 plants in France all built by the same company. And they've had a long 50-year time period to figure out what to do. They're building the plan in Finland. Oh my God! The cost overruns are just nutty, right? So, oh, so the usual Cato argument about expertise, and science, and let them go, and here we go, and it, it just they just keep saying we're going to do it somewhere in the future, but we haven't figured it out now. I think the only question I'm trying to figure out is Korea seems to be different. Have to figure out why. We have to figure out what. Is it construction? Well, the the MIT paper that reviewed the U.S. experience said it's not regulation mostly, except for that containment aircraft thing that I talked about. It's just a tremendous difficulty in managing construction site workers. And it's like, what? That's the problem? And it's not a union story, really, as best I could tell. So anyway, but Korea seems to be different, and but opaque. And uh, so we have to... We're now, my research assistant and I are trying to figure, you know, find something about the Korean experience and why it anchors the low-cost perspective and why uh, so little is written about what whatever it is they do, what is it that makes it cheaper. Interesting. Well, I think we can uh, put, a, put a pin in that and say – we don't know a bunch of interesting questions and we don't know. And we would like to learn more about the costs and benefits of nuclear, but moving to a different, uh, energy related question is something we've, we've discussed recently on gas taxes. Uh, so gas taxes have long been thought of, I, I think economists had generally thought of them as better form of a tax than other types of taxes because they, they at least supposedly put that money back into things that the cars are using. Uh, so there's more of a use tax going on. Uh, but you've been having some interesting thoughts recently about gas taxes. Not exactly the way you just said until about four weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> and it's Jeff Myron that's causing the mischief here. He's always, uh, sometimes he's just provocative. He's just pushing things just to, which is what good intellectuals do. You, how do you, you know, how do you know what you know? Well, you, you have to start from something and you only incrementally talk about other stuff. You can't think about your whole world all at once. So in 1977, after I was a senior and I was just graduating, so the summer after I graduated, I worked with Alan Altshuler at MIT and uh, helped him do research on an urban transportation book. And I did the energy chapter, which is why I became an energy person. And 
in that book and in all standard, it's not right of center discussion. It's just standard, not transportation economics, but sort of political economy transportation was that the gas tax was uh, overwhelmingly approved by U.S. citizens in referenda at the state level in the 20s and 30s and 40s. And that's how we build roads. Those revenues were dedicated. And then the uh, interstate system had a, ta- a federal tax in, 50, in 56 of four cents a gallon. And that money was, quote, dedicated to build the capital costs of the interstate system. And then you, ha- uh, and so again, then in that book, uh, we talked about Nixon and the transit problem or, or the rise of transit under Nixon. Nixon had a problem with cities, right? He didn't have much support in them and they were rioting <laughs> at the time. And he said, like the politician he was, he said, what can I do? And his, his answer to avoid discussions of race and spend money in cities was to subsidize transit. That's where urban mass transit subsidies came from. And it, they rose tremendously. Oh, goodness, 3,000% under Nixon or something like that. So then uh, Alan Altshuler, when he was Secretary of Transportation in Massachusetts, there was a proposal to build an interstate highway right through Cambridge, an inner beltway going through Cambridge between MIT and Harvard, cross the river and the BU Bridge, go through Roxbury and rejoin 95-93 in, at south of the center of Boston, a sort of inner beltway. Well, there was massive, MIT said, "Eh, you're not going to build a, MIT and Harvard did not want a road going through Central Square, right? And the governor of Massachusetts was an MIT grad and Alan Ulster. So this, what happened in the 70s, there was this exit near North Station in Boston that used to go off into the air and that it was called the road to nowhere. All right, it doesn't, they've now rebuilt the bridge and all that. But for 30 years, there was this exit in the air that was going to be the interstate through Cambridge. Anyway, so diversion became part of the political solution, all right? And then uh, as diversion grew over time, analysts basically said, well, the diversion's not a good, right? That Because now transit is subsidized by money that was supposed to go to highways and all of that. And so I too thought all of this until quite recently and then Jeff said, well, wait a minute. It, taxing and spending and economics are completely separate. This notion of dedicated taxes and stuff is just, I don't know what, it's not economics, he said. <laughs> and I go, okay, all right. And he said, you ought to tax things that have inelastic demand because that doesn't rearrange behavior. And thus the gas tax might be good exactly because why people hate it. Because they keep driving. And so the gas tax actually raises revenue efficiently. Then, well, what should you spend it on? And he said, the government should prioritize its spending based on the maximum benefits relative to costs. And you rank order them. And then you tax inelastic things. And then you spend money in that order on maybe defense. And then maybe, and then the last thing you spend it on is roads, maybe, he said, right? And so... I said, oh, my goodness, now I'm going to have... So we've been kicking back and forth sort of, you know, amendments and footnotes to that initial discussion. But that's where we are, which is um, the whole notion of public finance and the right way to think about taxes and spending 
is much more driven by political economy, i.e. something called dedication and, and diversion, but not pure economics. So that's where we are. So, I, okay, so we want to, so generally speaking, economics of taxes are for be raising revenue. Uh, they could also be for internalizing externalities. Uh, that that would be a little different, I think, than one that just is meant to raise revenue, because um, you might want to do that for. Uh, well, that's where we we also are talking about something called the double dividend, which is if you tax something for revenue, and then it also has externalities that you want to deal with, do you then need? And I use that is does that then mean you you need an additional tax, or can one tax serve? more than one purpose in economic sense, which is it's a good way to raise revenue and it also reduces the externality associated with, with that thing, my gasoline use. And I still don't, again, we're thinking about it. I, I won't say we know the answer to that question. What would it mean to spend tax revenues? Like, let's just say all our taxes are being paid into this centralized bucket, like a general fund, and then we're going to spend it. Um, what would it mean to spend it along purely economic lines, as you said, versus political economy lines? Jeff, just, I mean, our preliminary thinking was more Jeff than me. I'm not sure what I think, but he just said, well, cost just compare the present value of benefits from the spending versus the present value of costs. And then you rank order stuff. And there's, so you can imagine health and safety because the lives are so valuable, right? The cost per life. So maybe health, quote, public sector efforts are first in the budget, right? In this, in this way of thinking about things. And then you eventually get down to things that are barely break even where the present value of benefits equals the present value costs of raising the revenue. And then there's stuff that goes below that. Um, so I haven't, I mean, the only analogous thing I can think of is Kip Viscusi's attempt to rank order health and safety efforts, regulatory efforts, where you try to estimate the cost per life saved of various stuff and you rank order them. So for him, things like guardrails, right? We've had this discussion. Like making roads safer is cheap and saves a lot of lives. And so that ought to come really high up in your, your rank order of government spending purposes. And Does it matter? We talked about Kip Viscusi stuff before, but on this specific question, take motorcyclists. Um, so... A guardrail may save a motorcyclist's life. Now we have the, the Peltzman problem that it might also make them drive more dangerously and other types of safety stuff. But what about, I mean, I see some motorcyclists doing things and I'm like, they do not value their life that much. And they may not value it as much as guardrails, right? <laughs> I'm like, okay. And so like, we shouldn't be like, they're, they are really willing to, you know, this is, it's like what I say about astronauts all the time. I kind of took it from, this was weirdly in my dream last night. I was debating the president and I kept telling him this, but the problem with NASA is it cares too much about the lives of astronauts. Like there are people out there who will be strapped to a rocket uh, with very little safety harnesses to maybe get to the moon or maybe die. 
And we got to find those people if you want to make a cost effective NASA. And it, it, this isn't at that point about, you know, finding the cost of a life and, you know, of a life in the Kip Viscusi way. This is just like subjective value more than an objective measurement. Yes, they're sorting. People, different people have different risk preferences. Agreed, Trev, no question. And so all in all these discussions, I'm sort of talking about the median person or whatever. And then you could say, uh, in effect, letting motorcyclists die at greater frequency on roads and not having special stuff for them is okay because they are different than most people and they know it. And even though they haven't signed contracts that relieve the owner of the roads of responsibility for making them safe enough for their stupidity, in effect, we I mean, culture accepts the fact that they die and we don't care as much. Yeah, I mean, uh, yes, sadly, for, for the motorcycle. I mean, every there's, you got, we all live around DC. There's this famous kind of problem around here for the listeners who are far away. There's a gang of rogue motorcyclists that go on the Beltway and Route 50 to Annapolis most every weekend when the weather is, is not crazy. And they go 100 miles an hour and they go, they zoom around. Car. I mean, I've been in one of those episodes and my wife said, Peter, look in your rearview mirror. We're about to be attacked by a swarm of motorcycles. And they go in and out of traffic and all that. And it's taken the local police agencies three, four years, right? To, they finally indicted some of these folks. And some of them were off-duty prominent policemen. I mean, it's so there's again, policemen are not a random sample of the of the universe, right? And so uh yes, anyway. End of DVD hold there. Got a little off topic. Well, before I ask my final question, I want to just thank you, Peter, for being my last free thoughts guest. It's always a, a privilege to have you on, um, and it's been it's been phenomenal talking with you all these years. Uh, and and so I'm wondering, I guess, given how talented you are at talking about so many things in such a thoughtful way and in a way that keeps you open to exploring um not just you know not just confirmation bias exploring but genuine exploring of these ideas do you have i guess from your long career advice for our listeners for me going forward on how to approach engaging with the kinds of complicated issues that you engage with that's a good question. I mean, I, I just gave my intern lecture last week, and they're the future, right? And so they ask interesting questions, and then they go, well, the world's falling apart. Why do you, you're, you seem pretty optimistic, and it, are, should we be? And I go, I don't, I, I mean, the good news. So for me, the worst year ever was 1968. I just think, again, I it's not scientific, but here's my hunch. We got through 68. Stuff was burning. Stuff was bombing. I mean, I saw cops beat up Dan Rather on the on the Chicago convention on TV. Yeah, we're kind of, things are feisty now. No question. But it's not 68. And we got through 68. So that's why I'm optimistic. Pessimistic. 
even though Cato is not for vaccine mandates and things like that, I'm kind of, I'm an old Northeastern farmer Republican, if that makes any sense, where you thought people were pretty sensible and the government didn't need to do anything because most people were sensible, right? They figured stuff out and they took reasonable, appropriate action. You can't be a dairy farm without figuring stuff out like that because there's no one to I was going to say no one to bail you out, but now we know there's dairy price support. So in fact, dairy, all my hardworking Northern New York friends were actually just welfare cheats or something like, no, I, you know what I'm saying. So, but it's that sort of rural sensibility that I would think would lead everyone to take vaccines for COVID, right? I have, I don't know of anything whose benefits exceed their costs by such a ratio as that in terms of healthcare. And uh, and and so, if I were to be pessimistic, I would say, "Wow, the fact that thirty percent of Americans or some and concentrated among my relatives in rural areas that the fact that those people are resisting what seems to be to be sensible that's I'm, I don't have an answer. I, I actually I don't. And so." Um, how do you get people to just be, to lower the temperature and kind of be interested in inquiry and lead it where it does? And the answer is, I, I tried to do that my entire life and try to inculcate that in my students, but it's personality driven. I just think that's intellectual inquiry and it's best. I find it a high calling. And the fact that it rescued, it rescued me from milking cows every day, um, that's actually what to tell, I mean, and our and our colleagues, I tell them this when I think they've gone off the rails, which is what we do is a privilege. It really is. Only in a rich society could you set aside some people to think about stuff. We have a very, very privileged position, so I take it seriously. And thus, I were I I don't like using intellectual inquiry as a weapon. It it, it is it is not and should not be a weapon. And. Sometimes people listen to me and other times they don't. And that's that's all I could do. So, But and the two of you, I've enjoyed. I mean, whenever um, I'll miss Aaron popping into my office and just two hours later, we've realized it's been two hours, but it didn't feel like it. And that's that that was that's the good part. Sometimes with Trevor, it feels like two hours. No, I'm just <laughs> I'm just. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.